So the first scripture lesson is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read through to verse 17. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the living God. It is given to edify us and to build us up and to fill our hearts with great hope as we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought, you, brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your, with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will dis discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But... My steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accord, accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan spoke out of turn when he said, go and do whatever you want. And then the Lord visited Nathan and said, this is the real plan. This is my plan, not yours. And he gives Nathan the true words and, uh, and to, to instruct David with. And then we turn to Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the words of the new covenant about Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is the superior Savior. He is the great high priest superior in every way to the Old Testament, but in continuity with it. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And our primary text will be verses 1b to verse 3. This is the primary text. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, according to the flesh, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Well, in this sermon, we'll consider what the Bible says about the good news, specifically whose gospel is it? Whose gospel is the gospel? We'll also look at the, the promises made by the prophets of the Old Testament and the truth about Jesus the Savior. We'll look at his family tree, so to speak. When speaking of his message, Paul uses the term, the good news, the good news. What does the good news mean and whose good news is it? We'll take a look at the mysterious fact that the Lord appears in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament has much to say about the Savior. It, it points towards the Savior, and Jesus himself makes that abundantly clear on the road to Emmaus when he opens the mind of Cleopas and his companion and, and shows them that all of Scripture, all of Scripture speaks of Jesus. And he was speaking, of course, of the Old Testament. And as I've said a, a moment ago, we will consider why it's so important that Jesus was descended from the great monarch produced by the house of Israel, David. Why must the Savior be an offspring of David? Well, this sermon can be divided into three major points, three major points. Major point number one, the gospel is God's gospel. Major point number two, the gospel was promised through the Old Testament prophets. We'll look at Isaiah. And major point number three, the gospel concerns God's son, who was descended from King David. Let's begin with major point number one. Major point number one, the gospel is God's gospel. The gospel is God's gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the only Redeemer of God's elect, the only Redeemer of mankind. And it's a gospel that comes from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is God's gospel. What does the Bible mean when it declares that the gospel is God's gospel? Well, at the very least, it means that the gospel is not the result of human invention or human imagination. Despite what classic liberal scholars for the last 200, 250 years have been insisting, beginning with uh, Spinoza, the gospel is not the product of man's higher principles. Even in his best frame of mind and most lofty state of moral generosity, man did not create the message of the gospel. He could not. It's not the very best message which the very best of us has produced. No, the gospel is God's message of God's salvation to sinners. Sinners cannot produce a gospel 
let alone the gospel. I mean, they could produce a false gospel, but they can't produce the gospel. It must come from God. It must come from on high. It is a revelation, a revelation that we sorely need, and a revelation that comes not just on its own, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. But thinkers such as Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you know him, but he's a, a YouTuber that, of, of great renown. Thinkers like Jordan Peterson would have us believe that the Bible in general and the gospel in particular are essentially the product of man. Granted, Peter insists the Bible is the very best book that came, contains the, the most noble ideas that man has ever produced, but it ends there. It is a product of the human mind, according to men like Peterson. But this is not how the Bible portrays itself. Not at all. The Bible doesn't describe itself as the handiwork of man. Man at his best, far from it. The Bible declares itself to be the Word of God. The Word of God revealed through the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit and given to us through the mediation of prophets chosen by God for the special purpose of declaring God's Word to God's people. God reveals it to the prophets. The prophets reveal it to the people through, by, under the, uh, the power of inspiration. This is God's message. Thanks be to God that it is his message and not our own, because we would get it horribly wrong, both in, in scope and degree and message. It must be the word of God revealed from heaven. In other words, the Bible or the gospel is not man telling other men what they must do to save themselves. Rather, the gospel is, re is revealing, is God revealing to man what God has done to save men. You know, sometimes we make that mistake. We all do it. If we ever share the gospel, we, we talk about, instead of sharing the gospel, we talk about the way that God is working in our lives or the things that we are doing. And inadvertently, usually mistakenly, we point back to ourselves. And it's like we're saying, you know, um, if you're going to be saved, you've got to follow my example or my ethnic background. You know, that's, that's wrong. We're pointing to God and what God has accomplished in and through Jesus Christ, the man who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again. It is God's revelation of God's plan of salvation, and it is in this sense that the Bible declares the message of Jesus is God's gospel. Throughout his letters, Paul underscores the fact that the triune God participates in the work of salvation. In just a few verses, in verses 16 and 17 in, in uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul will describe the salvation as the power of God and the righteousness of God. The power of God and the righteousness of God. That's what we're, we're trusting in, the power of God and His righteousness. In his greeting in verse 7, Paul imparts the peace of God from our Father. The gospel brings about peace with God, and it's through our Father doing all of this. That is, God the Father is the one who initiates the peace program, and he does it through Jesus. And earlier, verse 4, Paul tells us, the work of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was accomplished by God the Holy Spirit. God the Father ordains our peace, Christ accomplishes that work on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies it to us. 
The Holy Spirit was the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Read Ephesians chapter 1, brothers and sisters, and see the marvelous way that God declares that, that the power of God raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit raised him. And Paul also teaches in verse 4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God when he was raised from the, the dead by the Holy Spirit. That's how we know that Jesus really is the Son of God, because God the Father and God the Holy Spirit raised him to new life. Yes, all three persons of the Blessed Trinity are actively involved in the work of salvation. And this is to the praise and to the glory of God. It's wonderful that God was intimately involved, um, tri the triune God was intimately involved in the work of salvation. Imagine for a moment that you received a message from the King of England. It's Charles now, right? Charles somehow gets a hold of your address, your email or your Twitter account or whatever it is. Maybe he, he sends snail mail. And he invites you, for reasons unknown that baffle you, he invites you to spend the summer with him at Belmoral. He was inviting you. He invites you to come to Belmoral um, Palace uh, for the summer. Well, if you received an invitation like that, you would be very pleased. Whatever you might think of Charles um, other times, you would, you would, he would be your best friend now. He's inviting you to Balmoral, and you would want to go. But, and you packed your bag, and you were going to go to Balmoral Castle, and you're going to hang out with Charles. But what if you caught wind somehow of the fact that the Prince of Wales and the Duke of York, who are also part of the royal family, didn't want you to come? Charles wanted you to come, but the, the Prince of Wales and the Duke of York don't want you to come. There's a conflict within the royal household. Some want you to come, some don't want you to come. Well, you would be very conflicted yourself. Would you go? Would you stay? It would be very awkward. If you did go to Belmoral Palace, it would be fun being with the king, but as soon as the prince and the duke came into the room, you would feel a cloud gathering. You wouldn't feel welcomed. But what if all three of those people in the royal family invited you to Balmoral Palace. It would be wonderful. You would certainly go. It would be a, a, a fun time. You would really enjoy all of their company. Well, that's a very simplistic illustration of how um, it would be weird if there was a conflict within the Godhead. You know, if Jesus wanted to save us, but God the Father and God the Holy Spirit weren't so sure. They didn't really want to invite you into heaven. But the glorious fact is that all three persons of the Godhead are intimately, actively, assiduously involved in our salvation. God calls, Christ obeys, the Holy Spirit applies. The triune God is at the very center of the gospel. The gospel is God's gospel. Major point number two. The gospel was promised through the Old Testament prophets. Yes, the Old Testament prophets declared the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Granted, it was in types and shadows, but the Old Testament prophets were speaking of Jesus. When we read the New Testament accounts of Christ the Savior, we, we, we rejoice because we know the promises of God were fulfilled in Christ. It's clearly um, disclosed. And we, might, we rightly praise God for having sent us the great mediator, his son. We know that Jesus is the Savior. Well, in a similar way, when the Old Testament saints heard the prophets speak of the Messiah, they too rejoiced 
because they knew the promises of God would be fulfilled someday by a mysterious yet unknown Savior who was ordained to come and ordained to save. And they looked forward to those promises. They put their trust in the God who made those promises and they were saved by faith in the saving God whose character is unchangeable, whose nature is unchangeable. The gospel of grace was promised throughout the Bible, beginning with Genesis. Yes, from the very beginning, God promised to save a people for himself through the agency of his grace, and every book of the Old Testament conveys the message of salvation by grace. Salvation by grace. But in the apostles' uh, introduction, Paul's introduction, it puts a special emphasis on the prophets. Paul stresses how they, in particular, the prophets in particular, communicated the gospel to the Old Testament saints. He says of the gospel, he says, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Did you hear that? The gospel was promised beforehand, before Jesus, through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which is, at that point, the, the Old Testament. Thus, we should fully expect to hear the glad tidings of great joy concerning the Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, when we read the major and the minor prophets. We should fully expect, as we're reading the, uh, the prophets, to hear the promises of the Savior. So, we should, when we're reading Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, we should fully expect to hear word of the Savior and to see how the Savior is manifest to the people of God through God's grace. And also when we read the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, we should fully expect to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, in shadows and types. We should fully expect to hear the gospel of grace in the Old Testament. And that's exactly what we do here. We hear the message of grace. Just one example of, of a, what Paul is pointing to when he says that the gospel was declared in the Old Testament. It's an obvious one. Your mind probably already has gone to it. It's Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 in which the prophet Isaiah spoke of the one who would carry the burden of sin on behalf of his people. Here we have a picture of the Savior, but what a wonderful, mysterious picture. Listen to it again, or listen to it, rather. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. He, speaking about Jesus Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their face he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one 
to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you think of a clearer explanation of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross than Isaiah 53? In fact, New Testament scholars, if, they have, if they're worth their, their weight in salt, will draw attention back to 53 and will say, this is what Jesus was doing. They explain the work of Christ by casting our minds back to the Old Testament and drawing our truth and our doctrines from that. That's what Paul does as well. Hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah delivered to the people of Israel one of the clearest teachings on the person and work of the Savior. The Savior would take upon himself the guilt, shame, and punishment of his people. But he would do so under a cloud of obscurity. People would look at Jesus. Isaiah is basically saying this. When the Savior comes, people won't recognize him. The religious leaders won't recognize him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees did not recognize Jesus. The veil was still covering their eyes. He would operate under a cloud of obscurity because the minds of man are darkened by sin. They must be enlightened by the Holy Spirit and their wills must be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus would be despised and rejected by men. Nonetheless, he would carry out the mediatorial work of redemption for the sake of his people that God, or whom God, had given him. God assured the Old Testament saints that their sins, he's speaking about to the Old Testament saints, remember in Isaiah 53, their sins were in fact forgiven by the work of the suffering servant. And the Old Testament saints would have rejoiced in the same way that we rejoice. They would have rejoiced knowing the promises of God would be fulfilled in the Savior. We know that Savior to be Jesus. Isaiah declared, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. When we think about the, work of, the personal work of Jesus, do we not rejoice exactly because of what Isaiah here is disclosing Christ will do? That he takes his sins, or, or rather our sins upon himself? That's why we rejoice. That's why we say we're saved. Because we don't have our sins. Jesus, the mediator, takes them himself. And it's the Old Testament saints that first had that wonderful message of the work of Christ. When we read the gospel accounts of the death of Christ on the cross, we understand in part what Christ accomplished because Isaiah explained it so clearly, so clearly. Christ bore our sins in his body of flesh. The relationship between the Testaments is one of promise and fulfillment. In the Old Testament, it's promise. In the New Testament, it's fulfillment. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament point to Jesus the Lord, who is the great Savior. We turn now to our final point, major point number three. The gospel concerns God's son, who was descended from King David. We heard about um, the, the, this line of David in our first reading, 2 Samuel, um, and, uh, and how God would establish a household for David, through David, but it would be a household that God himself would establish, would sustain, 
would, uh, would prune over time. There would be people within that household who would just be very naughty and go wayward, and, and they would be pruned away. But God would sustain the line of David until Christ Jesus comes and, and accomplishes all that's necessary. The, di- the Bible declares that Jesus Christ is Lord, both, um, is, is both Lord, um, God, and truly man. He is truly God. Indeed, he is the Son of God. We hear that in today's reading. This means he is truly and perfectly divine in his nature. But he was also um, a human being. He's always been God, but in fact, he, he became human as well. He is the Son of God from all eternity. Therefore, he truly shares the nature of deity. He is truly God. Romans chapter 9, verse 5 describes Jesus as overall God blessed forever. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, Jesus is described as the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead is pleased to dwell. The next time that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, come to you and say that the Bible never declares that, that Jesus is God, draw them to those passages. The Bible absolutely says that Jesus Christ is, in his essence, the eternal God. It is embarrassment of riches that we have that prove that that, um, the Bible declares, reveals that Jesus is God. Jesus is truly God. And it is this Son of God who takes to himself the nature of man, although he remains truly God while doing so. He never loses his divine nature when he assumes human nature. The Bible explains it according to our limited understanding. We are entering mystery here when we, uh, comp- or when we uh, study in the Incarnation. We're entering mystery. This is mysterious territory. It's been uh, declared and, and worked out in the doctrines of the, uh, the Church Fathers and the medieval um, theologians and the Protestant scholastics, but it's still mystery. It's still very mysterious. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 9, the Bible says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's how the Bible explains the incarnation. Not logically, although there's, it's logical. Not with reason, although it's reasonable. But poetically. By, by images. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, explains that in the fullness of time, Christ was born of a woman. This means that he was subject to all the vicissitudes that beset men, including suffering in body and soul. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, that we just read, states that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The eternal God, who mysteriously, through the incarnation, suffers. Not that God suffers, but that his human nature suffers. This is very mysterious. The phenomenon of the incarnation in which the divine nature and the human nature join together in what scholars refer to as the hypostatic union must remain a mystery to a very great extent. We can explain explain some things reasonably, but it's still deeply, deeply mysterious. The Bible provides statements and illustrations that remain tight-lipped on many essential details of this doctrine. And ultimately, we must, if we are to be faithful to the living God, yield 
to those mysteries and just praise the Lord that he sent his eternal son who took upon himself our nature. Very mysterious. The passage before us has much to teach us. Verse 3 tells us that according to his human nature, Jesus was born of the seed of David. The eternal son was, was born of David. That is King David. Jesus was descended from the royal line of David according to the flesh. The Bible reveals this truth in scores of passages from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that Jesus must be born or the Savior must be born of David's line. These passages include Samuel chapter 7, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23 and 33. Ezekiel 34 and 37. We hear it again in Matthew chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1 and 3, in John chapter 7 and Acts chapter 2, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and Revelation 5. Jesus must be born, the Messiah must be born of David. This great king, the eternal God, must be born of David. And Revelation 5 declares it as well. The fact remains the only way for Jesus to have fulfilled the promises of God to be the Messiah was for him to be a descendant of David according to the flesh so that he could assume the mantle of David but be the superior David. Psalm 110, Psalm 2. When we speak of Christ's humanity and discuss his nature according to the flesh, then we invariably are speaking of Christ's humiliation. Very important that Christ be humiliated. You know, in the 21st century, we're strong men and women. We don't like the idea of humiliation. We like the, the idea of triumph, of success. We're always moving forward. We're always conquering. We're always doing this and that. You know, the choleric disposition in full manifestation. But the, the, uh, the simple fact is that the, the Savior must suffer. Isaiah 53 makes that so clearly. This is what Philippians chapter 2 describes as making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Very mysterious. Christ's state of humiliation could not last forever, however, because he is eternal God, and he is the one who conquers. And the Bible makes this abundantly clear in verse 4 of our passage under consideration today. Here the Apostle Paul tells us, the Son of God, namely Jesus Christ our Lord, was invested with power. Yes, he was humble for a time. He needed to die for the sake of his people, die for their sins. But he would be exalted. And the exaltation begins at the resurrection, when the power of God from on high raises him to new life. Despite the wounds of his body and the death of his body, God raises Christ to new life. He is in his exalted state. We are to understand this to mean that God the Father confirmed the status of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. How do we know that God approved of Christ's sacrifice on the cross? Because God raised His Son to new life. That's how we know, and that's what the New Testament says. So when we're sharing the gospel, we don't need to worry about people's reaction to the resurrection. We simply need to declare that this is what God has done. God has raised Jesus from the dead. It's your problem if you don't believe it, because the declaration of the resurrection is all through God's Word. We need to stick with God's Word. Christ's resurrection 
was a reward for Christ's willingness to endure the state of humiliation. Like God says, I reward you now for all of your suffering, for all of your trail, um, um, tribulations and, and, and travails. I am rewarding you with resurrection. Psalm 2, Acts 13, and Romans or Hebrews 1 and 5 describe the truth that Christ's appointment from eternity was effectual in time meaning the resurrection. The effectuation took place at Christ's resurrection from the dead. In other words, Christ's resurrection from the dead was the beginning of Christ's state of exaltation. This is marvelous. Christ is exalted. He truly is king. And that began at his resurrection. In heaven, Christ has a, has a body, glorified, wonderful, really beyond our, the scope of our imagination. But he is the exalted one. During his incarnation, when he was in a state of humiliation, Christ's divine nature was concealed for the most part. He was a man of sorrows. We looked at him, but we didn't esteem him. Isaiah goes, 53 goes so far as to uh, intimate that he was, he was not a, um, a good-looking man. You know, some of us think, you know, we see pictures of Jesus, heaven forbid that we take the, pay any attention to them, but he's a very handsome, Aryan-looking guy. Isaiah says he was not good-looking. We have to look past the flesh, past the externals, to the glory within. He was a son of God from all eternity, but his divine nature was hidden from human eyes. Once he was raised from the dead and invested with power, his divine nature was more pronounced because it shone forth with all its glory. The state of hypostatic union, the, the, the divine and the human, gave Christ the greater glory now that he had accomplished all that his Father in heaven had ordained the Son to accomplish as Savior. Now that Christ had accomplished, it's hard for us to imagine, but Christ has more glory now than before. He has more, more glory now that he is resurrected than before because he has accomplished all that God had purposed for him to do. And this intensified glory was bestowed upon Christ by the Holy Spirit in verse 4, which clearly um, states that. Now the Holy Spirit has been intimately involved in the incarnation of the eternal Son from the beginning. The Holy Spirit was there from the beginning. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, declares that Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was operative in Christ the Incarnation from the beginning. But in the resurrection, the full power of the Holy Spirit is manifest when he conquers sin and death once and for all and raises Christ to new life. In death, Jesus became perfectly weak and frail in his human nature, but at the resurrection, Christ conquered uh, sin and death once for all and is raised to new life and power. The Bible speaks both of Christ's humiliation and his exaltation to reveal the marvelous truth that the only Redeemer of mankind knows our weakness because he has suffered alongside of us, but he is the one who also vanquishes our weakness by being the eternal God and the, the resurrection power. And this is the gospel of God. This is the gospel of God that we declare.
The word of God contained in the Old Testament promised that the Savior would come through the line of David. And that promise, the promise of a Savior, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in his person and in his works. And that is all to the praise and to the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. May God grant us the grace to receive this good news gladly and enjoy his love forever, beginning in this life and continuing on into eternity. Let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for his state of humiliation in which he became like one of us in every way. He was hungry. He was uh, restless. He never had a place really to lay his head down. He was always about the work of, of, uh, of your agenda, O Heavenly Father. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with uh, grief, O Lord, even to the point of death, death on a cross. But all of that was to accomplish our salvation. Father, we thank you that you ordained from eternity past the salvation of your people. And we thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your Son to be our Redeemer. And we thank you. We're so grateful, O Lord, that he did all that was necessary. Our great Savior did all that is necessary for our salvation. That he is the great King, greater than David, because he is the sinless one. David, as great as he was as a king, was a man who had feet of clay, and fell often, but Jesus Christ never falls, he never strays, he always only does what is pleasing to you. And in this way, you have declared him to be your beloved son, in whom you are well pleased. Father, we are well pleased with the Savior too, and we're so grateful that by your grace you have brought us into union with Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless us, that you would fill our hearts with love, that you would continue to remind us of your great mercy in Jesus Christ. You have covered over a multitude of sins and cast them into the ocean. And you have granted us your Holy Spirit that we might live lives of faith, quorum Deo, before you and before men. And Father, we pray that we would carry out the great mandate of your love and your grace in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, by your grace. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.